Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Zane Ashton to my colleague Julia Chatterley, and here is what you need to know. Slowing economy, China reporting its weakest growth in decades, and climate pledge, Microsoft promising to become carbon negative, and new ammunition, Democrats getting a series of revelations in the impeachment trial. It is Friday, my friends, and this is First News. Welcome to First Move. So good to have you with us on what's looking like to be another record-breaking day here on Wall Street. All the major indices look set to hit fresh all-time highs at the open. Tech stocks are on track for the strongest gains. Dow rose almost 1% on Thursday. It begins today's session less than 2.5% away from hitting the milestone 30,000 so far this year, which is only 15 days. Uh, the Dow and the S&P 500 have risen more than 2.5%. Tech has actually been the strongest gainer with the Nasdaq rallying over four and a quarter percent. The major markets in Europe are solidly higher as well this Friday. French and UK stocks are leading the pack up about one percent. The stocks rose in Asia too, but the gains were muted in China. New numbers show the Chinese economy growing at 6.1 percent in 2019. That is its weakest performance in nearly three decades. The big question is, will the just completed phase one U.S.-China trade deal help boost future growth. We begin our driver with looking closer at the Chinese data just coming in. David Culver joins us live now from Beijing. So David, of course, for any other country, these numbers, 6.1% would be stellar, but this isn't any country we're talking about. This is China. The numbers came in at the lower end of its target range. Um, is the worst over? And you're right, Zane. In the past, we've seen double-digit growth here, uh, percentage-wise. Here, they say they're within their target. Of course, there's even been questions as to the reliability of these numbers and the data that they put out. To your question as to if the worst is over yet, well, if you listen to officials here, they're certainly putting out a narrative that would suggest that there is going to be some stability going forward. In fact, Liu He, the vice premier who is representing the Chinese delegation this week in Washington for the deal signing of phase one suggested that uh, 2020 would be positive, that things were looking upwards. And he pointed mostly towards a, a lessening of the reliance on debt, as well as a drive towards innovation. The reality is economic woes have been felt here. It's been felt in consumer confidence. Even car sales have seen 18 straight months of decline in China. It's been felt as well with unemployment. There's real concern over unemployment, particularly in some of the rural provinces. And that's been something that the state council even put out last month here in China, telling those local provincial leaders essentially to go at all lengths to make sure that there are not massive layoffs. So there is an urgency to this, but at the same time, state media is also coming across 
to try to point out some of the positives as they see it. They point out some of the numbers that came out today uh, towards retail, for example, towards the back end of 2019, look to be trending upwards. They say that is a big plus, perhaps countering the negative consumer confidence that we've seen here thus far. So going forward, the, the economic stability question from phase one remains the mystery. Will it, in fact, stabilize things here and allow for China to see a rebound? That's to be determined, really, Zane. So obviously with the phase one uh, trade deal between the U.S. and China, that's a positive uh, development for the Chinese economy. But the fact is that there are many, many tariffs still in place. How badly does China need to progress to a phase two trade deal between both countries. It, it is interesting to point that out. The fact that really the only rollback was on 7.5 percent on 120 billion dollars worth of tariffs, but that 25 percent remains on 250 billion dollars worth of Chinese goods. So they seem to be wanting to see how this implementation process will go. It is also interesting to, to note the messaging here. They don't want to come across too desperate towards the U.S. Of course, they, they want to move towards a phase two, but they're also mindful and how they come across publicly in displaying that. The U.S. side of things, President Trump has said that that could wait until after the 2020 election. But can the Chinese economy hold on through that? Leading up to phase one, they were releasing little details. In fact, all the details out of phase one were coming from the Trump administration officials. China was keeping tight-lipped about it. And it seemed that they wanted the ink to dry first before moving forward with any of the details. But even before they signed it, Zane, there were publications coming out through op-eds and other editorials that were trying to portray that China had this strength underneath it that it could withstand even going without a phase one deal if it had to going forward. So the, the messaging, the narrative versus reality, that seems to be uh, two separate things. David Culver, my first there, thank you so much. So our next driver, the T in Alphabet, now stands for Trillion. Google's parent company joined the exclusive Trillion Dollar Club after the share price surged on Thursday. It is only the fourth, the fourth American company that has ever hit that milestone. Paul and Monica joins us live now. So Paul, this has really been a stellar sort of 15 years for Alphabet or back when it had its IPO, obviously it was Google. Um, the company launched its IPO with about worth about $23 billion, and now it's a $1 trillion company. Part of this is to do with really the hold that it's had on the search market and also advertising revenue uh, from the likes of YouTube. Exactly. Uh, you know, saying Google owner Alphabet has really dominated online search advertising along with Facebook for the past couple of years. And you mentioned YouTube. That is another huge driver of revenue for the company. They've obviously diversified into many other businesses like life sciences, which is the reason why they have the alphabet umbrella for everything. But Google now at this trillion dollar market cap, there are only two other American companies currently worth more. That is Apple and Microsoft. And then you have Saudi Aramco, which uh, you know went public last late last year at almost tw about a two trillion dollar market valuation. It's come back a little bit since then, but those are the four companies right now. And then lurking in the in the wings, Amazon, which had actually hit a trillion dollar market valuation in 2018, is pulled back. It's creeped a little higher again. It's around 930 billion. So we might be at a point not too long from now where there are four American companies worth more than a trillion dollars. And just in terms of. Uh 
alphabet moving higher? What's going to be the key for it, just in terms of its core advertising business, online advertising, just in terms of innovating when it comes to advertising, and also cloud computing, which is hugely important as well? Yeah, I think that Google Cloud is going to be an increasingly important part of the Alphabet growth story in addition to all the ads that they run on the core search platform as well as YouTube because we know, Zane, that the cloud is a big area of growth for Amazon. Amazon Web Services generates gigantic profits from it. Microsoft and Azure, they've been doing really well. Those are the two big leaders in cloud right now, and I think Google is hoping to become as formidable a cloud player as Amazon and Microsoft right now. All right, Paula Monica, my first there, thank you so much. Microsoft has pledged to go carbon negative by the end of this decade, by 2030. The tech giant wants to remove more carbon than it actually emits by that uh, year. Anna Stewart joins us live now. So, Anna, the timing of this announcement is quite interesting because obviously we've got Davos next week and climate change is going to be a big topic on the agenda. Just walk us through why Microsoft is making this change now to go carbon negative, not just carbon neutral, but actually carbon negative. And how do they actually plan to sustain this? It's hugely ambitious, isn't it? Carbon negative by 2030, so taking out more carbon than it produces. And by 2050, Zane, it plans to remove all the carbon it's ever emitted directly uh, since it was founded in 1975. So this is the most ambitious target I think we've really seen from a big company here. Microsoft's president, Brad Smith, said, while the world will need to reach net zero, those of us who can afford to move faster and go further should do so. Now, how do they plan to do this? First of all, by just reducing carbon emissions generally. By 2025, they plan to only use renewable energy 100%. They're also planning uh, targets sort of not having uh, any vehicles that aren't electric on their campuses and so on. Then there's the removing the carbon from the atmosphere. They're planning to see new forests. They're planning to uh, work on technologies that put carbon back into the ground, also carbon capture technology. And to do all that, they're also investing $1 billion in a new investment fund that will accelerate all those technologies. Zane? It's interesting because earlier this week, BlackRock actually announced that they are going to revolve some of their investment strategy around climate change and sustainability. So overall, Anna, just in terms of the big picture, what is corporate America's role in, uh, in, in helping and sustain the environment? Well, we're certainly seeing a lot of corporations under pressure, and I'd say from the tech sector particularly. Uh, a report from the AI Now Institute estimates that tech uh, companies, the tech sector, will contribute 3 to 3.6% of all global greenhouse emissions this year. So that is why they are particularly under pressure. If we examine how they're all planning to do this, though, Intuit, a software maker, also plans to be carbon negative by 2030, matching this new pledge from Microsoft. But the other big tech giants kind of lag behind. We have Amazon. They're planning to be carbon neutral, not negative. And that is by 2040, so 10 years later on. Apple says it is reducing its carbon footprint. It has by some 35% since 2015. But there are, there are no dates, no deadlines to be either carbon neutral or certainly carbon negative. I think these companies will be under pressure. As you say, Davos kicks off next week. And this is one of the big themes of the World Economic Forum this year. Satya Nadella, the Microsoft boss, will surely have a spring in his steps. He walks down the corridors. Now he's really set the pace with this brand new, very ambitious target. And we could see uh, a new sort of battle underway between these tech giants trying to match it. Maybe the new goal will now not be carbon neutral, but carbon negative. Zane?
Dennis Stewart, live for us. Thank you so much. Okay, so these are the stories making headlines around the world. The Senate stage is set. The jury is sworn in, and now they must wait out a long holiday weekend before the impeachment trial of President Trump uh, kicks into higher gear. You could call it the calm before the storm, but nothing is ever really calm in Washington. Athena Jones joins us live now on Capitol Hill. So, Athena, let's just talk about this uh, Lev Parnas interview. This uh, Rudy Giuliani associate for our audience who might not be familiar with his name um, is the man who allegedly, allegedly helped President Trump find dirt on the Bidens in Ukraine. How are Senate Republicans specifically reacting to the interviews that he's given? Well, Zaina, uh, many of the Senate Republicans you talk to are being dismissive of what he has to say. They're saying, look, he's under indictment. He's facing uh, prison time and he's trying to say anything uh, that he can to anyone who will listen to, to maybe reduce his prison time. That's also what we heard echoed uh, from uh, Vice President Pence's uh, a top aide to, to Vice President Pence, Mark Short. And so uh, there's not a lot of appetite, at least so far, among several of the Republican uh, me members of the Republican caucus to Having new evidence allowed, people like uh, Lindsey Graham, who, who questioned the legitimacy of and the integrity of Lev Parnas as a witness, and also uh, Tennessee uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn, who said, "Look, it is it was the House's job to put together this case. It's not the Senate's job to help the House complete its work. They should have done a more comprehensive job. They should have called these witnesses." So you can see kind of the, the battle lines that are being drawn. But you do have other uh, members of the Republican Party, a handful of moderates. And, and folks who are, who are facing uh, tough races that we're going to be keeping our eye on. Uh, several of those uh, members, uh, moderate members of the Republican Party, have said that they are open uh, to witnesses. So that, that's a question that we're, that's going to be answered in the coming weeks. Uh, we know that on Tuesday, when the Senate convenes to begin this trial in earnest, that is when the, we'll see them vote on, on a rules a resolution setting up the rules of the trial. What are, will be the parameters that this trial is carried out under? And we know that even folks who are open to witnesses, people like uh, Susan Collins of Maine. Even she says she doesn't want to discuss that at the beginning, at the outset. She wants to wait until uh, both sides, the, the, the House man, impeachment managers and the Trump defense team have been able to make their arguments, make their cases, and have the, the Senate senators ask questions. Then she wants to get to the point uh, of discussing witnesses and new evidence. Zane? And Athena, given that the Senate is, of course, controlled by Republicans and there's very little chance that Trump, after all of this, is going to be removed from office. What are the political consequences, though, for the president going into 2020? this could damage the president. I mean, this is this is a high stakes moment and, and all of the, the eyes of the nation are going to be focused on this. And, and of course, even members of his own party, people who have been dodging the questions about whether it was appropriate for him to have uh, pressured Ukraine to, to announce these investigations uh, into the Bidens, etc. They're now going to be forced to pay close attention, no distractions, no electronics, no smartphones, no, no reading material that, that is uh, not relevant to the case at hand. Uh, they're going to be watching closely. And so even though you may not get to uh, 67 senators, at least the hope on the part of Democrats is that we'll, the, the case against President Trump, the case against his wrongdoing will be spelled out for the American public and that a lot of the public will go along with their uh, argument that uh, Republicans are trying to cover up the president's wrongdoing, even if they do as expected vote to acquit him. Zane. All right. Um, Athena Jones, live for us. Thank you.
Iran, a defiant Ayatollah Khamenei led Friday prayers for the first time in eight years. In a combative sermon, the Supreme Leader blasted America, welcoming last week's attack on a U.S. base and calling it, quote, a slap in the face for the country. The crowd responded with chants of death to America. In the meantime, a U.S. military official has told CNN that 11 service members, 11 service members, were injured in last Wednesday's strike on the U.S. military base. The Pentagon had initially said there were no casualties at all. Severe thunderstorms and heavy rain are bringing some relief to Australia's fire-ravaged east coast. Authorities say the rain will not put out all the fires but will help contain the blazes. After three years of drought, the wet weather brings with it new risks, including flash flooding and uh, falling trees as well. After the break here on First Move, as the U.S. celebrates low jobless numbers, a shrinking talent pool is causing concern for business leaders as well. And we'll also give you a check on the markets too. See you soon. First move coming to you live from here at the New York Stock Exchange. We are gearing up for another day of records here on Wall Street. All the major averages are set to hit fresh all-time highs in just a few minutes from now. U.S. stocks, take a look here. Dow futures are up about almost 100 points in terms of futures. U.S. stocks are rallying amid optimism over the just-completed phase one U.S.-China trade deal and solid earnings from major U.S. banks as well. Talk of new U.S. tax cuts are helping too. Uh, the true test of this earnings season begins next week when a flood of corporate results begins pouring in, including Netflix, IBM, Intel, and many other uh, major companies and big names set to report as well. As the jobless number Number falls here in the U.S. A shrinking talent pool is a top concern for small and mid-sized business leaders. And according to a survey by J.P. Morgan Chase, businesses are responding to the lack of competition in the employment market. The bank's chief commercial analyst told Julia Chatley why it's such a big problem. I think the problem is when you when you look at where all these jobs we can't find, it's all over the place, every industry across the country. And I think that's confirming that really what's going on here is the demographics is really driving it. So you have all, you have a boatload of people who are moving into retirement, the baby boom generation. Same thing going on in Europe, same thing going on in Japan. And 65 year olds are leaving and there aren't as many people coming in to take those jobs. So to me, this is a huge demographic story. Not a surprise, because we've known about this since 1945, but we always thought, in the developed economies, we always thought, well, if we don't have the people, we'll get the immigration. Oh. And that's not been happening. Well, that's something perhaps that's masked what we're seeing today because this is heightened sensitivity, yeah. not just in the United States, around the world, Everywhere. but far more here, I think, than, than perhaps anywhere else. Japan knows this story really well because their population is not growing, but, you know, the Europeans have seen this for a long time, too, and now Americans are sort of feeling it. And I think it, it's, it's sad to me because it tells me that if we could find ways of getting people into those jobs, we could produce so much more. The economy would grow faster. It's part of the fiscal challenge for the U.S. The challenge for companies is that they're going to have to pay more. And what, yeah. seven-tenths of them in your survey said they are simply going to have to pay more, give people better benefits yeah. in order to get the workers that they need. Yeah, and I don't fear that. I think, I think we're, in a, we're in a good spot. <laughs> yeah, because good for consumers, Anything too. that makes companies work harder to retain people, it's not just the pay. They're working harder to help 
once people get into a job, they find out there may be more things available to them. And if you can get the training, companies are finding out that if you can train people for those jobs, you might retain them. And that's the big challenge. So you can't grow people, but you can improve their skills and move them into the, into the company and hold on to them longer. So it's good news, really. That is, oh, all right, just a few minutes to go before the opening bell. Tony Krasinski joins us live now. He's the market strategist and portfolio manager at PIMCO. Tony, thank you so much for being with us. Hi. So when you look at the market, we've gone from record high to record high. And then generally, when you see the stock market behaving like this, you anticipate that people are going to leave bonds and go straight to stocks. What is happening here when you look at the yield on the 10-year being at 1.8%? What is that telling us? Well, there's a, it tells you something about growth potential, that growth potential the United States, Japan, Europe, is still seen as low. Most people still think the United States growth might be around 2%. And growth such as that is not likely to prompt the central bank, the Federal Reserve, to raise its policy rate. In fact, it's more likely to keep it low because it's been undershooting on its inflation target. And it's made it very clear it won't raise interest rates until the inflation number starts to move up. And that's what the bond investor cares about when it thinks about investing, uh, looks at yields versus inflation. But it also thinks about uh, the safety element. It's very important to an investor to try to avoid market timing, the diversification benefits of bonds, and so they're not likely to leave bonds for equities simply because bonds are not yielding much and equities are faring well. It's like giving up on car insurance for a day or two because you think things will be fine. It's too risky to do that right. because you never know when there could be an accident. Okay, so there's still some concern there. When you think about the Treasury, the Treasury just announced that they're going to be issuing a brand new 20-year bond. Um, part of the reason for that is that uh, the deficit is a major issue. So just, just walk us through your thoughts on that. I think they're going to be issuing it in the first half of 2020. Well, the U.S. Treasury Department has had a practice since the 1970s called regular and predictable issuance. It likes to keep the calendar, the types of bonds that it issues monthly, fairly regular and predictable so that it doesn't has no impact on interest rates. Because if there was an irregular pattern, the bond investor might say, well, how much supply of bonds will there be next month for us to deal with? So perhaps we should ask for more yield from the Treasury Department today. Uh, but the large deficit, as you mentioned, Zane, about a trillion dollars per year requires, and as, as far as the eye can see, at least the next five years, requires that the Treasury get a little innovative with respect to issuance. Now, the amount of 20-year bonds that will be issued next year, which, by the way, is a very popular category for investors, uh, probably about $150 billion, $440 billion or so. To put it in perspective, that's about 1% of all Treasuries outstanding, about $16 trillion outstanding. It's very small. So it's not likely to have a meaningful impact on overall interest rate levels because global investors have a strong demand for high-quality bonds. And mm -hmm. the fact is there's a shortage in the, in the amount of high-quality bonds with nations, the final point is, nations such as Italy and Spain no longer considered highly rated as mm -hmm. they used to be before the financial crisis. So there isn't, there isn't a large amount of high-quality issuance out there. And then just in terms of this week, obviously we had a slew of bank earnings. Um, a lot of them coming in good, especially JP Morgan Chase. Others like Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo have 
other issues that they're dealing with that, that cause problems for those banks. But um, when you look at this low rate environment that we're in, obviously with banks, they have to diversify and perhaps charge higher fees in their advisory and their investment banking divisions to make up for it. What is the strategy for banks in this kind of environment? Well, what's clear is banks have gone back to what uh, I've often called the 363 model of banking. It's a more traditional model of banking. 363 old numbers, but uh, it's this way, that bankers would pay 3% on deposits, say it's near zero, charge 6% on loans, and be at the golf course by 3 p.m. So they've gone back to this sort of 363 model, as you could call it, or something else with different numbers. Uh, more traditional banking, earning money on fees, earning the difference between the amount they charge on loans and they, they pay on deposits, which we all know as depositors is very low. <laughs> right. So they're making money there. So PIMCO favors banking institutions, particularly in Europe, and different parts of the so-called capital structure um, because of this soundness of banks. And one could simply go to Federal Reserve website or the European Central Bank website and look at stress tests they've done and conducted on these banks to see that even under very severe conditions where the stock market declines almost 50 percent, home and uh, commercial real estate prices fall 30, 40 percent, banks still have so-called capital levels that are above what regulators want them to have, which is another way, long way of saying they're probably going to be in a lot better shape than they were even uh, dur during the financial crisis if something severe were to happen. All right, Tony Kuzinski, live for us. Thank you Thanks, so Tony. much. Appreciate you. Have a great weekend, Thank by you. the way. All right, that's it for the show. Thank you so much for watching. First Move, I'm Zane Asher. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.